Welcome to Tide, a new podcast series by the Harvard Independent. I'm Charles Zhu. And I'm Marissa Garcia. Together, we'll explore how the climate crisis has affected the city of Boston and driven individuals to take action. In the first episode of Tide, we focus on the student activists behind the movement for climate justice. One of these groups, Fossil Fuel Divest Harvard, has mobilized demand that Harvard University withdraw investments in the fossil fuel industry. Students, faculty, as well as alums have joined together to advocate for a sustainable and socially responsible future. On November 23rd, at the annual Harvard-Yale game, Divest Harvard took its protest to the Yale Bowl, rushing onto the field to call both universities to divest from fossil fuel companies. Their actions delayed the game by approximately 40 minutes and made the rounds on many national news networks, including the New York Times and The Guardian. Marissa, you were at the game. Can you walk me through how this protest unfolded exactly? Yeah, so both the Harvard and Yale bands had finished up their respective halftime performances. And then a group of student leaders began marching from the side of the field. I believe that was spanning sections 20 to 25. And they were holding up signs so expansive that they were the length, that they were the length of the group of people. Um, some of these signs read, Presidents Bacow and Solovi, our future demands action now, um, really bringing to the front um, the demands from both schools, both Harvard and Yale want divestment. Um, other signs said, nobody wins, Yale and Harvard are complicit in climate injustice, as well as this is an emergency. Um, and then the crowd began erupting into chants, screaming, divest Harvard. So I wasn't at the game, but my Twitter feed was really blowing up the whole time. Um, and you mentioned these signs. In the context of the divest movement, what do these messages on these banners mean exactly? Yeah, the nobody wins message really builds off the language uh, specific to the game, I think. We all get so rallied up wondering, oh, is Harvard going to beat Yale again this year or who's going to win? And the Divest Harvard movement strived to communicate that in an era of climate change largely induced by fossil fuels, our universities refused to cease their financial support of these industries. And therefore, nobody wins until their demands are made actionable. I also want to focus on the scale of this protest. Looking at the videos, um, it seems like there were hundreds of students on the field, some part of the Divest movement, others sitting in solidarity and also others who happened to just rush down from the bleachers. What was that moment like? Can you describe it? 
Nearly five or so minutes into the protests, students from the bleachers began rushing onto the field, and I could hear people even rallying up their friends and screaming, let's go! Then some people in the crowd also were booing, and the announcer became increasingly stern in a futile attempt of controlling the surge of students. But I can say the energy was undeniably palpable from the people running onto the field. Um, for a moment in time, I actually uh, sat on the stairs leading down onto the field and just captured the energy from all the students. Fuck football, save the planet. Do you have any thoughts? Agreed. What are your thoughts about how they're doing it? Um, I think it's I feel effective. It's effective. I feel bad for the players from a sporting perspective because they work really hard to get to these games, but at the same time, really doesn't matter how the Harvard-Yale game ends if we have no planet in 50 years. And Marissa, I also want to take a step back. Um, why do you think Divest chose to protest in the middle of Harvard-Yale, which is perhaps the most famous school rivalry game in America? The Harvard-Yale game is definitely one of the most momentous events for both universities. And seeing that there is demand for divestment from both universities, it was an ideal place to make these demands um, visible to both presidents. And it was especially powerful seeing the solidarity behind divestment amidst the rivalry of the game. Right. It seems like they're really pushing this idea that two historically rival schools can put aside their differences and come together for one cause, which is the climate crisis. Now, on the flip side, some may also say that sports and politics should never mix. And by interrupting such a pivotal game in the Ivy League, the protesters may have angered a lot of the diehard fans or the players themselves. Did you get a sense of that pushback uh, from the audience or anyone in attendance? Yeah. I mean... As I talked about a little bit earlier, there definitely was some booing. What do you think about this movement? Do you think it's being effective? No, I think climate change is a hoax invented by the Chinese to rip off American industries. But when I had a chance to interview some attendees in the stands, I tended to hear a consensus that they thought the protest was generally pretty effective. Some people are claiming this is unfair to the players because they've worked so hard for this right, game. Do you right. think this movement is worth the sacrifice? I think it's worth any sacrifice because if we actually look at the grand implications of this, this is our planet. This is where we live. Like, if we don't divest, if we don't protest for this movement right now, like, there's going to be no one around, like, in this entire world to care about, you know, the football game, Harvard, Yale, whatever. Like, this takes any consequence, any movement, and 
who need to stand down now. So it seems like people are being arrested. That's why people are booing. What are your thoughts about people being arrested for this movement? I, I mean, I think it's wrong. I know the cops have to do their job. You know, it's what they've hired. They've been hired to do. But um, it's worth it. And I, I would be, I would be willing to be arrested. I, unfortunately, I was dragged off the field. So, Marissa, I know divestment is not just a movement limited to Harvard and Yale. We've seen this happen at many schools across the nation. For example, the University of California officially announced they would be divesting in September 2019. And Middlebury, eight months before, also agreed to divest in January of 2019. Yeah, and I actually talked to an attendee who was a graduate um, of the University of Vermont and said the stadium protest reminded him of the divest protest from when he was a student there. So the fact that this divestment is causing such discomfort in the audience does prove that it is effective at least in gaining attention. I do believe that this is gaining attention enough where an event such as Yale-Harvard game is going to attract the attention of the administration. I do think that this is an effective protest in exercising student voice, and I support what they're doing. Thank you so much. Any other things you want to express about that? Keep trying as hard as they can. I graduated from the University of Vermont. Our protest did not garner as much attention as this, so I totally support any initiative that garners as much attention as an entire... So it's clear that there's student backing of divestment all over the nation. Recently, we saw this topic was a bit of concern to Harvard students in their votes for the undergraduate council election. When asked whether the university should divest by Earth Day 2020, 69% of voters said yes. And in addition, 72.5% of voters were in support of Harvard adopting fossil-free 350s reinvestment principles that advocate for social equality and ecological health. Just about 82% of voters were behind the university publicly disclosing its investments. It'll be interesting to see how these student protests ignite change. I actually spoke to a student regarding whether he thought this would catalyze action from the administration. Incredibly affected. I think a lot of people in the stands were talking about, like, what is divestment? Was this effective? And I think the fact that they were even asking whether or not it was effective demonstrated that it was effective, ultimately. It'll be interesting to see now what the administration's going to do. Stepping back from all the coverage for the Harvard Indy, Marissa, what does it feel like to just experience this event as a student rather than a reporter? Yeah, um, standing there on the field in solidarity with all of my peers is a memory now charged with so much energy. The chants were powerful, and we were all chanting imperviously. And I think we should also make it clear to our listeners that the Harvard Yale game was not a one-off event for divest movement. A week before the game, I covered a performative demonstration by the student activists in collaboration with Extinction Rebellion, which is another climate crisis activist group. Again, these two groups were calling attention to Harvard's investment in fossil fuels and urging them to divest. On November 15th, students knelt in front of the Smith Campus Center and spilled oil on themselves as a form of protest. I spoke with one member of Extinction Rebellion to hear more about his thoughts on the movement. 
Do you mind just identifying yourself and what your role is? Sure. My name is Jason Rodokas. Um, it's definitely more than a student movement. However, there are many students that are involved. Um, I got involved in the movement because uh, my background is in climate science. And after reading the IPCC report uh, that came out in 2018, that basically told us that we have really 12 years left to get CO2 emissions uh, into line with a sustainable future, uh, that alarmed me. Not that I didn't know that these kinds of things had been happening for a long time, but it takes somebody telling you that we really are in an emergency and to stop this emergency. There are major economic systems that need to be dismantled and disrupted, and XR has a philosophy that's sound and cohesive, and it will build a sustainable and long-term movement to help us transition um, to a world that's livable for everybody. I also sat down for a long interview with Eva Rosenfeld, a member of Divest Harvard who discussed the goals and principles governing the divestment movement. Hey Eva, thanks for coming in today. Can you start off by telling us what your role is in the divest movement? Yeah, of course. So um, the Fossil Fuel Divest Harvard, which is the official name of our campaign, is basically horizontally organized, meaning we don't have um, a hierarchical leadership structure. So for most of my time on the campaign, I would say I didn't hold any official position because, because just because of the way that the movement is structured. Um, right now, I am acting as arts coordinator, um, so I'm so I'm I help to provide structure for some of the arts and art action based parts of our of our campaign. Can you give us a sense of how many members there are in West Harvard? Just how many people are involved? Um, similarly to kind of the horizontal structure of the organization, it's sort of hard to name an exact number of people because it's not so much a group as a movement um, and people are really involved at different levels. So there are many people who support the movement but aren't actively involved but will come to come to protests, come to actions and so on. And there's you know, another level of people who will contribute to organizing on um, an infrequent basis or, you know, pitch in on a certain project that fits the, what they feel like they have to contribute to the cause or what kind of fits their interests. Um, and then at the center, there's sort of a group of, of core organizers who really provide the infrastructure for the movement and make sure everything is, is getting done along the timelines that we've set. So. For example, in our group me right now, which is like sort of the everyone who is somewhat active, there's probably a hundred people. Um, but in our Slack, which is a slightly higher level of organizing, it, it's it's fewer, but um, still, you know, dozens of people. And you're a junior at the college, right? Yes, I am. So were you involved in this movement right from the get-go? So my freshman year, the divest movement was not active. Um, I started working on it at the very beginning of my sophomore year, which was when this iteration of fossil fuel divest movement really picked up. Uh, an organizer named Issa Flores Jones was um, one of the last people who had been sort of a core organizer of the previous iteration. 
of the movement, which uh, which was very strong in like 2015. Um, so she sort of helped bring a lot. She and um, a few other people, Sophia Shapiro was another person who had been involved before, um, helped bring a lot of kind of a lot of knowledge and memory from those past iterations into restarting a campaign. And there was a lot of new energy starting at the beginning of last year around environmental justice, um, HUGE, which is Harvard undergraduate environmental justice, or Harvard undergraduates for environmental justice was forming at that same time and, and really took up uh, divestment as one of its core goals as an organization. And so with all this kind of renewed renewed activity, um, this campaign grew a lot over the course of last year in the 2018-19 academic year um, and kind of culminated up into a heat week, which was last April, um, which was a series of, of events and actions calling for um, Harvard to disclose, divest, and reinvest its investments in, in the fossil fuel industry. And then that kind of takes us to where we are now, which is that we have a goal um, for Harvard to divest from fossil fuels by Earth Day 2020, which will be the 50th anniversary of Earth Day. Eva, I also want to go back to what you said about these last three semesters being a bit of a resurgence period for the divest movement. What do you think is driving that renewed interest? Um, I think it's complicated and it's hard to pinpoint one reason. Part of it is just that is just kind of the nature of student movements and the ways that people, you know, activists only are present for four years at most. And so there's kind of a inevitable ebb and, ebb and flow of leadership and movements and so on. So I think it's partly just following that timeline. I do think that there has been a an increased awareness in the past few years. This is totally like just my perception, but um, of uh, of the of environmental justice movements and of the ways in which uh, environmental crisis coincides and you know works alongside system, other you know systems of oppression and kind of and um, perpetuates equality and um, along along race and class and gender lines, which I think became especially. Uh, especially evident in the public sphere as the Flint water crisis um, came to, came um, into like, public knowledge in 2015. Although environmental justice movements have been around since you know, the 1980s um, and have, and, you know, although, yeah, although this is a long tradition and these problems are by no means new, I do think that there has been an increase in maybe the past four or five years in a public understanding of the ways that like racial and class oppression, for example, coincide with environmental issues. I want to get into the endowment itself and to what degree Harvard has been transparent or untransparent in the companies and industries it invests in. Based on your group's research, what might be going on behind the closed doors, or you might say this black box of an investment office? Um, so Harvard's endowment is about $40 billion, which is the single largest endowment of any university. And the vast, vast majority of that endowment is invested through something called the Harvard Management Company, which 
Um, and all of those, all of the Harvard management company's investments are, are private investments, meaning that, uh, meaning that there's no transparency around what Harvard is invested in. Uh, the public can see Harvard's SEC filings, which show, um, which only publicly disclose less than 1% of Harvard's total endowments. We do know that of that 1%, about $5.6 million are invested in the fossil fuel industry. So if that was evenly, that $5.6 million uh, was extrapolated to the entire endowment, that would mean Harvard was investing about $560 million in the, in the fossil fuel industry, which is an enormous amount of capital and an enormous amount of capital with which to support the activities of the fossil fuel industry. Um, but we don't know that, which is why our, one of our, our first call is for Harvard to disclose its investments because we don't think that there can be any ethical investing if, there's, if it's not disclosed and or any meaningful conversation around what Harvard invests in if it's not disclosed. In addition to that, um, another part of our campaign is about Harvard's, is about Harvard's land investments. So we know mostly because of third-party research that um, that Harvard is one of the biggest global farmland owners. Uh, it owns about a billion dollars worth of farmland all over the world, but especially in the Brazilian Cerrado, um, which is one of the most what has historically been one of the most biodiverse regions in the world. And these investments um, have extremely destructive effects for both people and ecosystems. Uh, they've, you know, they've cut people off from their traditional lands. They've cut people off from their water and food supplies. They've totally devastated um, river systems and uh, and entire water systems. Uh, there, so most of the information we have for that is through a group, uh, a farm workers advocacy group based in Brazil called Grain, and they've done a lot of research from lawsuits and court filings um, to kind of piece together Harvard's investments in global farmland. And so they're the ones who have come up with this number um, of a billion dollars and of hundreds of thousands of hectares of land in the Cerrado alone. So, um, and that's, you know, that's, that's only what they've been able to uncover. So that's conservative because Harvard, this is yet another thing that Harvard doesn't disclose and is known to buy through third party, um, through third party companies that themselves are responsible for falsifying land claims, stealing land from indigenous peoples and so on. And when you bring up the lack of transparency and the, the fact that they're part of the destruction of farmland and biodiversity, how has Harvard responded to these allegations? Um, the Harvard Management Company and the Harvard administration's line is that, that well, they have, they have many lines, but I would say one of their central ones is that our endowment should not be used, wielded for political purposes, that our endowment is here to, um, to support the activities of the school and to support scholarship and to support everything else that goes into running a university. But we say that investing in these things is explicitly wielding this money for political purposes and that investing is equally political to divesting. Um, it's just that right now, investing in the fossil fuel industry is the norm. So they're able to 
and if we they are able to frame it as being apolitical. And has Divest Harvard had any extended conversations or interactions with these investment managers and the higher uppers at Harvard thus far? So we've had a few encounters in my time in Divest. Um, Divest has in previous iterations has met with administrators before until a few weeks ago. Um, this particular possible Divest Harvard had only had a like less than 10 minute conversation with President Bacow in his office hours, which was for a long time the only way that he uh, made himself available for dialogue and if you can call it dialogue. And uh, he also spoke at a forum that we organized last spring um, with a few other faculty members. But um, in late October, we had the opportunity somewhat out of nowhere to meet with uh, President Bacow as well as Bill Lee, who's the senior fellow, who's a senior fellow of the Harvard Corporation, and several other Harvard administrators, including um, Kate Martog, who's one of the lead investors for the Harvard Management Company. And Eva, you've mentioned that Devest has had ten-minute conversations during Bacow's office hours. What makes this October meeting different from the rest of them? Well, it was a real amount of time. It was an hour-long meeting, and we and we knew that that was an amount of time that that we would be able to press administrators on answers to certain questions that we hadn't been able to get straightforward answers to before, as well as reiterate our Earth Day 2020 deadline and, you know, the seriousness with which we take that deadline. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think that this meeting represented a major strategic turning point or anything, because I think in a lot of ways, meeting with student organizers is a necessary public relations move on the part of the administration and something that they need to do in order to say that they're engaging with student activists, especially divestment activists who are interested in, you know, messing with Harvard's money and something that they can use to bolster their um, ideas that change should be made through what they would call civil engagement. And so moving on from this meeting at the end of October, what what has been sort of the, the progress you guys have made? What's the next step? Um, well, I would say right now all of our strategy is working towards our Earth Day 2020 deadline and in continually putting pressure on the administration. Part of that is through faculty. There's been a ton of faculty activity this semester, which is amazing. There are some fantastic faculty advocates. Um, the faculty have something of a movement of their own that they, that operates separately from ours, but there are a lot of um, uh, very compelling and smart and dedicated faculty who who are you know pushing ahead movement towards divestment on that on that front as well as alumni. There's a lot of organizing happening amongst alumni. Um, so the way that um, the way that divestment has happened at other universities is sudden, and administrations tend to be adamantly opposed to the idea of divesting until they do, and then they usually say they did it for financial reasons. Um, we want to build the pressure so that Harvard has no choice but to divest. Well, thank you so much, Eva, for coming in and talking about this today. Thank you so much for having me.
And that's the first episode of Tide, podcast by the Harvard Independent. Check out more of the Harvard Independent's coverage of the Divest Movement on our website at harvardindependent.com. I'm Marissa Garcia. I'm Charles Zhu. And that's all for now.